Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Yay! You know what? Yo, thanks. Woohoo! Um, in case you thank you for that was a pretty awesome cheer, by the way. Is, were you a cheerleader? Ever? Efficient? Never. Okay, good. Do I look like a cheerleader? No, no. I'm just you the cheering was pretty on point. Uh, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things ideas, creativity, smart people doing smart things, and innovative ones uh at best. Hello, N- Nicole Prouse. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, do I am I required to call you Doctor Nicole Prouse? Nikki. Ah, even better. Please. All right, Nikki, it is. Um, so I guess for starters, give us a little bit of a, a 101 on your world and, and <laughs> where you play. <laughs> uh, I play in a sex science space, so that is uh, studying things to do with human sexuality primarily and their application to general health. But I don't do surveys, which is what 95% of our field does. I do physiology. So I have a lab. I bring people in. I test them doing sexy stuff and see how it impacts their health. Um, I love that you said that you don't do what everybody else does. Because uh, it, it there was a statement I read in your bio, but it was it was almost confrontational, but it wasn't. It was kind of like, who, yeah, they're doing me? that. Could, <laughs> yeah, you <who>, me? <laughs> um, but there's something to be said about kind of going against the grain. And even something as, as non-taboo as sexual study, like... It sounded like there was a lot of taboo even in that field. And you were like, I'm doing away with that. I'm going to start Liberos. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, we're all constrained and worried about getting stopped and getting in trouble. And so we play in the lines because we're like, we're lucky we're even here. Just keep your head down. <laughs> I'm like, screw it. It's all blowing up anyway. Let's just do the science the way we should do it. Yeah. And, and what was that? What went into that decision? Because I would imagine that at some point, like, you're you took a job yeah. <laughs> and you're like, this isn't, there's gotta be a better way of doing this. Yeah. It was not uh, my decision initially. So I had been an academic about 10 years, had tenure track appointments and ultimately ended up at UCLA. I uh, got promoted to an associate scientist and sent in a protocol for an orgasm study. And they just said, you can't do that here. I said, excuse me, <laughs> like, you're kidding, right? Uh, and they didn't give me any privacy or safety concerns. They just said, you can't do that on campus. I said, this is going to be a problem. You know, I can't uh, do the kind of stuff we need to do. This is the next step in our work. And then we got a grant to do some of the work. And they said, you can't take that money either. I said, all right, I'm out. Wow. (laughs) So it was a series of things that ultimately made clear that work can't be done in a university setting, at least not in the U.S. And then I had a debate. Do I follow everyone else to Canada? which is what most of my field had done because mm. turns out Trudeau likes uh, sex scientists a lot more oh, than let Trump Let me write does. down Canada. In yes, one of my notes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> we like Canada. Uh, but you might have noticed Canada is cold. That's true. And I don't like the cold. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I said, I'm going to try it a little different. Uh, and so I set up a company that's Libros. And we took the grant into that company. We did the orgasm study as a part of that company and just collaborate with all my same old collaborators at universities. But then their university gets to offload the risk right. to me. So it's perfect. So going back to that decision tree early on, I guess... What were you trying to accomplish through the study that you couldn't get done with surveys? So the first bit with the orgasm piece is we were actually looking at using that to study depression and look at interventions for depression. So like one of the key features in depression is kind of this anhedonia. That is, they don't experience pleasure in the way they used to. And 
we said, well, how much is that really a threshold issue? Like if you give them something pleasurable enough, you know, if their body will be responsive. And so maybe we can use something intense like an orgasm experience if you do that systematically to help manage depression symptoms. But there's a lot we don't know about really, really basic orgasm physiology. And so we said, we have to start with a control study, just kind of basic, you know, how does this thing work? What does the brain look like right. at these different stages? How is that similar or different from depressive states? And that was where we got blocked just immediately. Um, trying to be mature, but because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say cock blocking. That was what I was going to yes, say. Yes, um, so many times. <laughs> so you, along the way, you created a lot of firsts, right? Um, I'm going to try to use some science words. You ready for me to try to talk science? Do it. Uh, you're the first to apply TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation well done to alter responses mm -hmm. so what's the difference between measuring a response and altering a response at least in in terms of like you just said like depression and other things that we learn from from studying this it's a huge leap since people have started doing more brain stimulation so most people know brain stem from like one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of uh you know insane mm. electroconvulsive therapies where we put a whole lot of energy in the brain we don't really know where it went and some studies found there were memory side effects that we do not like. So uh, it was really good for depression, but it had these really nasty side effects. And so there was a long pause of scientists saying, like, we're not going to touch this tech anymore. You know, that's dangerous. People don't like how it works. There's got to be another way. And eventually came back around saying, you know what? Actually, this would be really useful because all of our brain tech is passive, just measuring what comes out. Right. So like functional magnetic resonance imaging, positron emission tomography, electroencephalography, they're all passive, just sitting, waiting to see what your brain creates. So if we want to know like what a brain area really does to function, we'd have to wait until somebody stabbed themselves in the eye and like hit a, that particular brain region. And then we go to lesion studies. Like what happens when you turn that part of the brain off by stabbing or something. <laughs> so what these new technologies UCLA wouldn't do, let you do that one either. I know. This is such a people in the eye. <laughs> just, just, uh, just once. Yeah. We get these really cool, like individual <laughs> one-off cases. And we're like, when this random guy somehow got this part of his brain obliterated, this is what we saw. So the stimulation technologies let us do that on the fly. So you can kind of, you know, deactivate or alter uh, functioning of different brain areas transiently. Mm -hmm. So we can figure out better kind of what they're doing and how to piece things back together um, in a way that doesn't require poking someone's brain. Uh, <laughs> speaking of poking, you also were the first to do, sorry, I'm going to do this the whole time. Um, you were, the, you were the, one of the first to do 3D printed, what's the plural of penis? Peni? Peni? Peni. <laughs> I like peni. Okay. Thank you. Um, but you were the first to, to do that. And I think this got me into this mode of thinking around not only just doing the work, but the invention that has to come along mm -hmm. with doing the work. Um, kind of walk us through at least some of maybe some other things that I might, might have missed in terms of first and inventions, but then maybe more so the process of getting there. Like, ah, oh, we need this and nobody has it. So mm -hmm. we need to make it. Yeah, 3D printing has been really useful in our lab. So the first one was just trying to figure out how do you ask about people's experience with different penis sizes. And this is, that study has so much legs. Like, I, it's not really primarily what I study, but I know it's, uh, yeah, everyone wants I mean, to feel free to explain, but I, it was just like, it, well, a sidebar, you have one of those jobs where it looks a certain way on the surface to yeah, the majority yeah. of the population. But, you know, the fact that you start off with like depression in this conversation mm -hmm. is like, oh, okay. You start to draw these different connections yeah, yeah, yeah. of why it's important. Sidebar, but yes. The, you, 
We originally printed a bunch of blue 3D penises because I was interested in dyspareunia or women experiencing pain during sex. So less fun than a bag of dicks, but uh, Mm. that was what we needed it for. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, then, you know, the 3D printing we've used in our headsets, we've used to build anal probes and that's all, you know, like I don't do AutoCAD, so I collaborate with an engineer um, and we have to go back and forth with a physiologist, like how long is the anal canal? God, has anyone ever studied that? (laughs) So I'm going to figure that out. Um, So it's, some of the 3D printing tech has been really useful in generating some of these new instrumentation bits. And uh, the tech around wireless technology has also been really important for us. So traditionally, uh, measuring brain waves or functional magnetic resonance imaging, we're really limited in getting um, couples interactions because like the, the EEG brainwave thing, the cord is super, super short mm-hmm. uh, traditionally. And so like we used to have people on bite bars. Like you could not move your head. It had to be like just wow. right there, no head movement. And now they're wireless technologies, Bluetooth, that are good for some of that measurement. So now we can measure two people interacting sexually together from both their heads, you know, in close proximity, which yeah. is crazy. Like if that Bluetooth tech hadn't been developed by someone else, not a you know, we couldn't do that study yeah. just straight up. Well, we were talking earlier uh, in a previous conversation about in, in a, innovation being a form of applied creativity, right? So you took Bluetooth and used it in a way that 99% of us don't. Um, do you have any other examples of kind of like, let's call it layman tech <laughs> um, <laughs> that has been applied? Like 3D printing is great. Um, the Bluetooth is great. But is there... Arduino boards? Like that kind of? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Oh, we have Arduino seed boards. We buy that stuff all the time. Um, and so it's making a vaginal probe wireless uh, so that someone can move around a little bit with it. It's um, putting a pneumatic device into the butt <laughs> that they have. These already... Like you're, you're shy about your work. Well, <laughs> it's partially... Div- so normally I would say anal, you know, if I was at a meeting or something. It yeah. turns out some people don't know what anal or anus means. And so it's like we have to remember use butt, even though it sounds very <laughs> non-sciencey. I'm like pausing... You know what the funniest thing about this conversation is? <laughs> uh, so my daughter wants to be a neurosurgeon, and I was like, uh, not, not yet. She's 13. So mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, she can't listen to this one yet. Um, unless you disagree. This but is a I, job I'm, option. I'm the dad. It's a job option. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so continue. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so we absolutely, you know, are grabbing other people's tech. We had um, a power tail switch issue. We were trying to run a automate a vibrator to bring people to orgasm hands-free. There was reasons we were trying to do that. Um, and we're like, how the heck are we going to get a vibrator that's this powerful? We can't run it through the Arduino. We kept like the board shorted out on us more than once. You know, we killed a few Arduinos. Uh, and turns out somebody had built, built a power tail switch exactly for that purpose yeah. to kind of scale down the charge. And so we could get it computer controlled so that we could have our you know, testing person in one room and we could be in the other space. Uh, kind of controlling the stimulation and then also recording what was coming out from the Bluetooth headset yeah. that they had on. Were you were you built for this? You know, like, I, it, <laughs> first of all, this doesn't sound like a career trajectory. Some you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen year old person when they go to college, even mm-hmm. though you have an intern that's really young on, on your team myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you going from surveying on a college campus, if you will to inventing technology to do your job like doesn't seem most of us don't have to do that right we we could take tools that are out there or we're like thinking of things so 
how did you prepare yourself to be curious enough to let go and seek those things out and tweak them to the to put them in butts? I think the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't I, let it now go. It's contagious. I couldn't let it go. So I think the biggest thing was uh, I started at school at Indiana University, and they had a big shop downstairs, which not all research universities do, but we did. Um, so we had a bunch of mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and some programmers who literally were stuck in the basement and often scientists would send their orders down and say, I need, you know, an arm that does this when I send this kind of pulse to it and then does this when I send that. Uh, and then they would deliver it. And I said, what are they doing down there? You know? right. So uh, we were building out a new lab and I said, is it okay if I go down there? And they're like, sure. And I showed up and the engineers were like, there are humans here. You know? <laughs> and, and they were fantastic. So I still remember uh, Dwight. Dwight's passed on now. Um, but he became, when I was a graduate student, kind of my mentor. And I was like, you know, I, we have to stick this thing on the labia and we have to use FDA grade plastics. What does that mean? How do you mold FDA grade plastics? And so he showed me how they machined the, you know, kind of device to pour those into and how you had to think about doing a cut that was going to not you know, get it off kilter, off center. And I just love that. You know, they were happy to see me there. So I think it was really encouraging to be like, yeah, don't just send the stuff out and make somebody else do it. Right. Own it. Yeah. You know? And that's in some sense a older tradition in psychology. You know, that is the old older psychologists used to build all their own stuff. You know, they had paper scrolls with the needles on the thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> you had to know every bit of it if you wanted to be a physiologist to like know how the, uh, everything transmitted. And now, nowadays <laughs> students these days um but they often don't do that anymore i think and it's a shame because yeah. there's a lot of uh, exactly innovation that just can't happen because i see this all the time in my field they're like well we just don't have a way of measuring that i was like then you invent it <laughs> yeah. like you don't do a half-assed job because there's no way to measure it well you figure out how to do it right or you don't do it yeah well there's there's I feel like there's a difference between natural curious people, right? Where you like, you went out, what's down here? Oh, can I, <laughs> hey, I got this thing I'm thinking about. And some people use the tools that are in front of them. Do you think that, especially as you go along in your career, do you think that that type of curiosity can be taught? Ooh. Can you teach somebody to be <laughs> an explorer and a, as high a functioning of a creative problem solver as you become? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. So I, my first tendency when you're asking that is to think it's strongly personological. That is, there's not a lot of, so I always think of like, this is kind of a set, set point issue. So like with weight, you know, people, uh, weight is strongly genetically determined, but you can lose weight. Uh, but it's going to be harder, <laughs> you yeah. know, if you are kind of set at a point that's just higher for your family. And so I think creativity might be kind of similar. That is, you know, if you come from a family of crazy experimentalists that gave you the gene that, you know, uh, enhances the activity of D D2, D4, you know, that's uh, giving you a lot of reinforcement from learning stuff, mm -hmm. uh, there are genetic differences. And so some of that is going to be kind of set in you and it may only have so much flexibility. So if you get in someone who just really is resistant, yeah. um, I don't think you can create a new human true but you can probably shift them a little bit the shift, the shift, <laughs> well i think about like genetics versus behavior um and uh, someone asked me once and uh, i hadn't thought of it until that point in time 
they were like, where did your curiosity come from? And I was, mm-hmm. and it took me a long time to like figure it out. And I, the one connection that I did make, I don't know if it still rings true, is that I, like I grew up, um, uh, my mom was a single parent and, uh, mm-hmm. and she didn't go to college until she was 33, when, which is when I was born. Then went on to get two master's degrees and then started taking all these classes. Like she was mm-hmm. doing belly dancing one week and it, and it didn't, I, I like mean, her. that must've been like 10 <laughs> or 11 uh-huh. around that time. And this question was asked me maybe two, three years ago. And I was like, oh, that's kind of, like, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know if it was a genetic thing. I think mm-hmm. it was just like a, a subtly subconscious behavioral observation. We take classes. That's what we do in this family. Right. You know, we learn stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I guess, does your work still focus on like, are you still trying to solve problems like depression? Or are you looking at just pure sexuality or is there some blending of the two? I don't care about sexuality, really. Okay. I don't care how many orgasms you have. I don't care how good they are. I don't care if you like your partner. I guess I bought this, <laughs> this other note. So, <laughs> so I always say, like, to me, um, my field right is always arguing for this. They're saying, like, oh, sex should be important. You should value women's pleasure. And that's fine. Like, I have no problems with those arguments. But you're never going to convince Mike Pence. You're never going to convince Mike Pence's of the world right. that those are important values. So what do they value? Well, he might value being able to sleep at night if he has insomnia. You know, he might value uh, helping someone who's uh, struggling with social anxiety issues. Uh, and so if I can show, like, actually, genital stimulation is really good for helping with this thing that you're actually struggling with, you'd be like, oh, crap. You know, right. Now I have to value this stuff. Uh, and you've given me a reason to care about it in a way that's different from uh, just I should value pleasure because I'm not a hedonist. I'm never going to be a hedonist. And uh, so I think in some ways my field hasn't met people where they're at. You know, they keep hitting that brick wall and saying, like, no, you should value the same thing I value. And that's how we're going to move forward is I'm going to berate you <laughs> until you change your mind. <laughs> and we know how well that works. So, uh, so yeah, I think about it really differently in that. You know, you have to say, what is it that people value that my field can help them with? So, you know, how many people masturbate to help themselves sleep at night? Well, how does that work? When should you be masturbating if you want to fall asleep better at night? These are things we really don't understand. We have great animal models for them, um, but we don't really know how they work in humans. And then even once you've got it working, well, guess what? Now you pissed your partner off because, you know, he or she was hoping that that tonight was going to be the night. And you're masturbating to help yourself sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so (laughs) now we've got this other issue that is related to a problem people care about. You know, it's like, okay, let's figure out how we're going to integrate this sleep uh, intervention with you knowing that you have a partner who sometimes is going to have sex with you. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's, uh, and uh, I think that maybe marries nicely to the other side of it, which you do get into like the addiction parts of pornography and sexual behavior. Um, is it still rooted in other, you know, forms of connection for people or is it like, was that specifically focused on like the addiction itself? Uh, so the points that, yeah, we've started doing a lot of research with kind of connection more broadly, right? So like when you have sex with someone, like, yes, there are those individuals who can treat, you know, tab A, slot B, sex is extremely mechanical. Um, but it turns out those people are actually super, super rare. It's not, you know, this, um. I think kind of huge problem that we thought it was that so that is even people with one time partners 
do a lot of romantic behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, they do a lot of eye gazing. They do a lot of spooning. They do a lot of talking after orgasm uh, or pillow talk, uh, which we didn't really think people did if they were, you know, yeah. one night yeah. stand. We're like, all right, get out. Uh, and that's not the case. So people are getting connection in places where we didn't think they were necessarily getting it from. And so the issues with pornography are uh, not at all as nuanced as they should be in media. So usually I think when people are looking at pornography, it's not a matter of disconnection. Like they're not looking at porn that's taking them away from a partner. Rather, they have a partner who's not having sex with them and they're trying to manage these discrepant desires. So they masturbate to do that. And sometimes when they masturbate, they look at porn. So then we see these relationships like, oh, porn is associated, you know, with all these relationship dissatisfaction. It turns out if you follow them over time, like in longitudinal studies, you're like, no, that was uh, (laughs) like they were having problems before the porn viewing started, uh, that it's really due to somebody trying to figure out how to manage those discrepant issues. So so I don't worry, honestly, about porn as being disconnecting. And we even uh, brought couples into the lab and did exactly that. We showed them porn and they're like, yeah, I really want to have sex with my partner now. Can we get out of the lab? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? well, uh, well, that's the other part of it, too. You know, I think, look, I go watch a movie and I got to fill out a comment card. There's all <laughs> sorts of like, you know, yes, I'm like, oh, that yes, it was funny or mm-hmm. uh, I was bored or whatever the, the, the things are. Mm-hmm. But when we start to include physiology or other things, I'm, I'm also a big fan of like um, uh, biometric testing. So yeah, like you watch a movie. When I was working with Warner Brothers, we were trying to get them to do more biometric measurement of, mm-hmm. of movie watching. But there's always other inputs that somebody might be experiencing because it, maybe it feels awkward for them to be studied while they're being intimate. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe X, Y, Z, mm-hmm. and through the rest of the alphabet. Um, how do you manage the you know those additional inputs? <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> this is so bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> You you signed up to come here. (laughs) So to me, the best way to manage that stuff is within subject designs. And what I mean by that is you serve as your own control. So if you come in and you're a little bit angry, uh, like you had a bad day or whatever that is that you come in with, uh, that's fine because we're going to show you the same three films, uh, if you take the film case or the commercials, whatever they are, uh, that we show this other guy who came in pretty happy. And uh, we're going to look at how your emotions vary on top of the baseline that you started with. So, uh, you know, the folks, if you remember from your research methods class, and you better because I taught research methods, <laughs> and that was a very important lesson. But you know, there are at least two broad forms of control. There's between subjects and within subjects. And so within, we almost do all of our studies is within subject designs. And it's for that exact reason. You know, if somebody walks in and they're just kind of a horny bastard and they're responding to everything and, you know, they look at my neutral film of the Grand Canyon and they're like, so like when the airplane was flying through the canyons, was that supposed to be like a slot, which is like the vagina? And we're like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like people do this though. Right. Cause no, like you're saying, they walk in with different things. Sure. Uh, so that's part of how we try to control for that. It's like, just a preconceived notion, right? Like it's, yeah. Um, and this is not an open invitation to the audience, but on your website, there is like, make an appointment. Like what, <laughs> what, what are people like from the, uh, you know, what are people coming in for or what are they scheduling an appointment? For? It's mainly been uh, used by media so far. So it'll exactly be somebody who says like, what exactly is an orgasm and what does that look like? And how do those things work? And so we have had folks in, like we had a couple in, um, where one 
and had oral sex on the other one. And I was like, you know, I have no reason to think that an orgasm from oral sex should look any different than an orgasm from masturbation than an orgasm from intercourse because orgasm is a reflex. Um, and we can document that the reflex happened and we can see those same kind of shifts in the brain. And that was what, you know, I think that was Showtime wanted to document. And mm -hmm. so that's what we kind of helped demonstrate is, you know, an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm <laughs> at some level, even though that we may experience them as being more or less intense, that it's reflexive. And yeah. so however you can generate that is is how that works. And so we use the biometrics exactly to kind of show, you know, the comparability of like the number of contractions that occur and the intensity and that the brain state shifts occur in the same way. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, who asked you to do this work? You know, <laughs> I find like a lot of research is like, oh, we work for AT&T. And so mm -hmm. all of our cell phone research goes to like, um, or medical research, we do make devices and those get deployed to hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, Who's asking you to? Who's asking you to do this stuff? What the heck? So most of the research we do is funded by nonprofits. So uh, we just got a new grant from the National Organization of Rare Diseases, and we have grants from the Institute of Orgasmic Meditation that's interested in that issue. We've had grants from the National Institutes of Mental Health, and so depending on you know you have to align your work with what they want and need. Right. So. There's always some balance and like the grant from the National Organization for Diseases is looking at post-orgasmic illness syndrome. Um, so this is these uh, poor guys who you know, every time they have an orgasm have flu-like symptoms for two to seven days after they orgasm. What the heck? You know, like terrible thing to go <laughs> yeah, through. Um, it's fairly rare, thank goodness. But as a part of that study, uh, we're collecting, you know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we're collecting all of these biometrics, you know, that are basics on, on cortisol, that are basics on inflammatory factors. They're going to tell us things about orgasm that have never been measured before, which is insane, you know, that they've not been measured before. But that grant gives us the opportunity to collect some of that really basic information. So I can say, guess what? You know, like orgasm makes you healthier. We can show that like the inflammation changes. So you know, that's going to be a goldmine of data, yeah. not only for the guys who are suffering that specific patient population, but also just for science. <laughs> you yeah. know, like where should we be looking in the future for how to use the sexual stimulation? What's it good for? Well, it's, it's a good uh, sort of segue. I had a conversation with the head of innovation at Lululemon uh, recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that they realize over time and just kind of observing people engaging with their gear was that a lot of people describe it as feeling naked and not in the sense of like, oh, I can move freely, but like there was an emotional sense of freedom that felt like being naked, um, that emotional connection to it. So do does any of your work ever, well, let me back up, with the sort of sexual stimulation as when people say it's orgasmic or chocolate or these other <laughs> things that kind of bring a sensation that's reminiscent of sex of mm -hmm. sexual experience does your work ever touch on that or um or what might be your perspective on it uh accidentally <laughs> so <laughs> uh we were joking we had the gold digger test for a while because we were comparing people's responsiveness to rewards of money versus rewards of genital stimulation and there were a few people I'd who were more that. responsive to money than to genital stimulation. oh really mm -hmm. uh which we didn't expect <laughs> so um so I guess in that sense, but there, I think maybe closer to what you're asking is like, in some sense, pleasure works the same way in the brain. Uh, the kind of uh, circuits that 
provide the information to us that we're doing something that we're enjoying and that we find reinforcing and that we want to do again in the future don't vary a lot between uh, types of primary rewards. So mm-hmm. eating a chocolate cake and, you know, obviously there are other processes because we're consuming calories. And so we're also saying, hey, we need to digest this. There are other things in the brain, but the basic kind of reward function, there is no sex circuit. There is nothing in the brain that's a sex spot. So, you know, they're relying on the same circuitry to kind of reinforce and reward that space. So I can, yeah, I can totally imagine that you're saying, or when we commulate like, oh, I'm so addicted to chocolate, you know, there's, (laughs) uh, or it's orgasmic, you know, this this cake is orgasmic, that there's some sense in saying like it's relying on similar kinds of experiences. Well, you know, you go kind of going back to your, uh, maybe almost making a counterpoint to, you said it's, you don't care about sexuality. I, I come from like the brand world, right? And everything sexualized in some way, or a lot of it is. I would imagine that somebody wants to get it right, right? If I'm selling whatever was a hair commercial, but like, oh, oh, oh like I want to use that. But like, there's, <laughs> um, I don't have any hair, so you saw that it didn't work out well. But ha- I don't know. Have Have you ever worked with any brand or an entity like that? Um, to help them better understand either messaging or how to evoke an emotion? Because I know you did, you've talked about like butterflies in your stomach and like what that, you mm-hmm. know, where that comes from. Um, but has that touched anywhere outside of your normal domain? It should. So, I mean, we've done some commercial work with, but with explicit like sex toy companies, people mm-hmm. doing innovation in the sexual technology space. And, you know, we run into even these issues just with those folks who should be more savvy, you know, about like they, they're right in there <laughs> yeah. doing, the, doing what they're doing. And sometimes like, oh, you know, that's not really true. The claim you're making about the, how the genitals work. Uh, but it, it does always surprise me, like the way media sometimes kind of ham handedly uses sexual uh, stimulation, because the primary thing that it does that's unique is it captures attention really well in the same way that something that's really violent or really disgusting also does but it's acceptable. Right. You know, so like we don't want to show somebody a pile of poop because that is disgusting, but we'll remember it about as well as you would an erotic <laughs> image. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, as long as you can capture their attention, uh, it's just like sex is just a good way to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like we use these models of emotion and it's been the case for you know, 60 years easily. The brain has always been the most responsive to erotic stimuli. doesn't matter how much porn you've watched in your life. It's still the most responsive to erotic stimuli, more so than babies, more so than adventure sports, more so like wow. it's just kind of a slam dunk as far as attention grabbing. So I understand why media would use you know, that uh, type of approach. Um, it is a sledgehammer, you know, <laughs> it yeah. just, it grabs your attention, does exactly what you want it to do, but we don't do any work directly with media companies for that. No, it's fine. I, and, and not that I, I expect you to, but I, you know, when I, I used to run the innovation practice for a giant media agency and we had a lot of clients and every year we would do a trend report. Mm-hmm. Um, the year I left one of, we were talking about the changing idea of intimacy, right. And what it means to be in partnership or like whether it's sex tech, at the time, it was when CES had a whole bunch of sex robots, uh-huh. and, and they're like, they're taking all our jobs. Yep. Right? Um, <laughs> and so, how do we approach from a messaging standpoint the idea of a family or like, hey, it's date night, right? And like a robot or the 3D printed penis or whatever, like, may take away from some of that intimacy I experience when I'm trying to tell you a message about, hey, buy her this diamond because this is the way, like, what romance looks like. And it may not look that way. Um I don't know if I have a question there, but it was just, it's, it was just a, a thought in terms of 
using what you know and applying it to like other spaces? I mean, I think people have a lot of concerns about using technology in some sexual space that it's going to detract from closeness with a partner. And so we've done a lot of work around those kinds of issues. And some of those fears, of course, came out when the vibrator like first came on uh, the market, which so we should, if we can, we can dispute this old myth. So people have maybe seen the hysteria movie and this idea that vibrators were invented to treat women. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Turns out that's not true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like this myth has been going on forever, but, uh, Still, there were lots of fears around vibrators in general because, oh, women are going to stop having babies and they're not going to need men anymore, so they're going to stop getting married. And that didn't happen. And it's because these are uh, some of the technologies are different in terms of the types of rewards they are. So like when you watch a, a sexual film or you see a sex robot or something that you're not actually receiving stimulation from, you say that's a secondary reward. Like it reminds your brain sex is a thing that we could get. We should maybe pursue that right now mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when we watch porn. But unless you're masturbating with it, you know, actually having some direct stimulation, those things don't impair your partner experience because your partner is a primary reward. And like touch is really unique uh, in terms of how the brain recognizes touch uh, and the kinds of chemicals that are generated with that. Uh, that you will never get from a robot. So, like, I'm not scared of the robot overlords because they're, uh, they're things they cannot reproduce. Yes. And, uh, and as far as we know, we'll never be able to. You know, they're, it's, it cracks me up to see people worried about that because I'm like, they're, they're so nowhere the near. Is not it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> just, they're, they're way too different in the brain. I just don't see how they would uh, generalize in a really robust way. Well, fear is, a, uh, is an interesting thing in that regard. Right? It, I think when the, you mentioned Canada and like they had the robot brothels, I think it was in mm -hmm. Toronto. And then the most surprising thing about that to me was that the human prostitutes were protesting outside of the robot brothel. What's all that about? Uh, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, but it's the same thing. Like that fear of shift or some something taking over my role, you know, whether it's in a traditional relationship or in the, you know, the service side of the business. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a question there either. I just, I was oh, it's up. interesting. I didn't know that they were doing that. And I wonder what the thought was. Like if well, that was the thing real... that happened in a relationship, like you just mentioned, mm -hmm. that's probably why I thought of it is, is that, you know, suddenly my role in your life is threatened. My, in, in their case, it's livelihood. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, unionizing and like, there's been NPR stories on all this stuff. Um, but that'd be, maybe that's an interesting field for you guys to, to play. That's what, yeah. I wonder like what, if they've ever talked to a scientist and cause I, my guess would be there, you're not really threatened. Like they may try it out, but they'll be back. I can't imagine prostitutes <laughs> so. sitting down with scientists. So <laughs> I, you could be the first, could be another first on your, on your thing. Okay. Um, so on your Instagram, I saw a phrase that I liked, um, sexual, I can't say this word, sexual psychophysiology as art. Well done. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so you did you participate in this or did you go to it in Houston? There was some experience where yeah. they were using this kind of science <laughs> to like create a public experience. I participated more than I realized I was going to. <laughs> but uh, this artist called me up, Sarah set off, and she said, I want to do this performance piece and I want to project my sexual response. I said, okay, do you have any idea like what exactly you want to show? She's like, well, what can I show? It's already been accepted. I said, oh God. <laughs> so I kind of went over with her. I was like, we can do thermography, uh, vulvar thermography, like showing your heat changes. We can do internal changes. We can do anal contractions. 
you know, what do you think? And so we settled on, I think, three different measures. And these performance artists are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So they, she was like willing to do all these things. And I was like, do you want to be nude? Do you want to, because if you have a skirt, we can, so we had to negotiate all those things because I'd never done anything like this. Yeah. So, um, on display before. And then she wanted also to interact with the audience, which I found out I was going to be managing. <laughs> Just to invite people to stimulate her while also making sure her boundaries were not violated. And so, uh, you know, we had a, uh, a nice neurotic novel that someone came up and read to her. And we looked at how her genitals responded to that. Like the whole room looked at how her genitals yeah. <laughs> responded to that. How many people were in this room? Uh, it looked I, like a pretty sizable. It was a big crowd. Yeah. yeah, I was not sure. I thought maybe this is a t- you know one of those subculture yeah, like exactly. twenty Some people underground things. Gallery. No, it was like a couple hundred people. I would guess. I don't wow. know. Um, yeah, it was really an unusual experience. But I love those things, you know, because it's it pushes your tech. Because I was like, okay, this thermography is going to have to be wireless. I've never done wireless thermography before. How am I going to get this projected? Um, how can I do this in a way that you know, gets up under her skirt, but doesn't require her to be nude or to take it off. And am I going to need to cool her genitals? We used to have like automated fans and I didn't have access to that for this. Like, how am I going to deal with that? (laughs) I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. Um, No, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, when art and tech collide mm-hmm. in that way, um, I think, how did that, you mentioned it sort of pushing you to become more creative in that space mm-hmm. and thus in turn going back. And I'm curious, I think when people are sort of at the apex of their field, what actually stimulates you to push further, you know, um, and I'll give you an example is like the, uh, uh, Andy Walsh who runs the human performance lab at Red Bull. Mm-hmm. And he's like pushing these athletes and executives to the, you know, far beyond anybody else. And I'm like, well, who, who, who's pushing you to be even more creative and what in service to these individuals, but like, where do you go for your own curiosity, learning, inspiration, all that stuff? I think it's just the questions guided. So it's really like, we need to figure out, you know, what's happening with these people in this space. We have to be able to get them close. They have to be able to touch each other. They have to be, you know, you get all these requirements just automatically built in to answer the question. And, so it's really, you know, you have the question first and you say, we have to answer it. I'm not going to slack, you know, we're not going to half-ass this and say people, you know, how do you feel? I, I mean, I'll also ask how you feel, but <laughs> you know, that's not enough. Sure. You know, how you feel isn't enough. I need to know what your body's doing because you don't always know how you feel, frankly. And, you know, we need some, some kind of different uh, objectivity to supplement that. So it really is just... You know, if you want to talk about human connection, we got to stop with the porn stuff. You know, <laughs> like we yeah. can't keep showing people porn and saying that that somehow models how you're going to be with another person. We have to put another person in the lab. Yeah. You got to figure that out. And it's a huge pain in the ass to figure that out. But, uh, you know, it's okay if we want them touching, do we want them to be able to talk? Okay. If they got to talk, we got to record that. How are we going to record? How are we going to protect their confidentiality? How are we going to do, you know? So I think it's really like the overarching questions kind of define the parameters. Like this has to go. There's nothing to do this or that aspect of it. Yeah. How are we going to do that? How many lawyers do you have? Mm, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> um, so uh, you said you weren't a cheerleader. And I said that jokingly because I, I know you ride a motorcycle or you did for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And you got, t- you got in, a, in an accident a little 
tumble. A couple of accidents, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but one, kind of fucked with your head a little bit, yes? Uh, possibly. Um, it's hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> what happened and how did, has that had an effect on how you approach your work? <laughs> uh, so I think... Not whether you can do it or not, but just yeah, like yeah, now yeah. you've learned a little <laughs> bit about your own well, brain. Sure. So I think, yeah, I've had kind of two bigger accidents and yeah, one was a spill on a racetrack and another was on Hollywood Boulevard. And one of the things I really liked about bikes is, you know, as you might guess, biking is not the only stupid thing. <laughs> sport I like to do. I can see it. And, I can see it. Um, you know, so of some of the uh, risks I like to take is it's more an example than a driver maybe, you know. So uh, my question with the bike is like, I saw those people put their knee on the ground. That's so cool. I wonder if I can put my knee on the ground. <laughs> like, how do they do that? And so you learn like there's that weird sensation of like you have to push the bike with your other knee to get that knee on the curb and then you don't even need your knee down to go fast sometimes, like only mm. in certain situations. And so figuring out what that feels like um, and then, okay, can I do that faster? <laughs> and so I think it more reflects that kind of uh, how does this thing work? Yeah. You know, like, well, if I wanted to do that, how would that work? And, you know, it's not that I'm a big like motorcycle person that's none of that in my family but it was uh i that's fascinating you know how do people do that yeah and i want to be there i want to try it it's the same you know i took a skateboarding class and spent more time on my ass than on my board but it was the same kind of thing like you know how do those people run on rails with a board like how do you <laughs> make that happen how fast do you have to go to do that how do you jump it up on the rail how do you like go yeah. to a skate park and not stand you know just lay on your face the whole time <laughs> Um, so I love those kind of things, you know, it's just like, how does that work? Yeah. What does that do? What was, what was little Nikki thinking about when she was eight years old? <laughs> uh, well, there's no internet porn yet. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> think about VHS. <laughs> old school. The, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was already on the motorcycle kick, um, trying to get my parents to buy me a motorcycle to their credit. They refused, <laughs> uh, jerks. <laughs> but yeah this could be a coming therapy session too if you want <laughs> right? to continue to talk about the grant. so it just yeah ever since then <laughs> um, yeah I don't know it was uh, I mean I was very much a nerd at the time too so you know did the science fair stuff and figured out how to do ag agar plates uh, for basic um, bacterial growth assessments in you know junior high school um, some athletics at the time I actually do a lot more now than then so I think, yeah, it was just a lot of like, I was, yes, I was in the math club. Fine. Is that what you mean? But <laughs> I was hoping it was a counterintuitive story. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but aside from that, yeah, it was just a lot of, uh, I think, exploring, you know, I was in all the things. It was Latin and um, student count and all that junk too and yeah. mock trial. And uh, I just, I liked all the things, you know, I was always joining every club and. But like, what, do you remember what drove you to, to. I mean, I was similar, but probably not to the same extent, right? Like, yeah, I don't. I mean, I think it might have been the same kind of underlying, just excitement seeking, like curiosity. You know, yeah. like I don't know that I want to go be a politician, but why do people go to the student government? Who cares? You yeah. know, <laughs> like um, that seems to be where Stephen Miller started out. You know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of campaigning. What is that about? What does that take? <laughs> what What do you put on a flyer? What do you? Um, 
So I think it was more just uh, some weird fearlessness that's always been there. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, I was not the best uh, member of the math club, but I didn't care. It was fine, you know, because yeah. it was fun to do and I wanted to try it out. Um, I got better. <laughs> I think it's, uh, there's something to be said about the habit that develops over time of being comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable, right? And, yeah. And taking your absolutely. naive self into an environment where you go like, all right, I'll figure it out. And mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I'm going to not only figure it out, I'm going to be additive here in a way that you guys probably would not have expected. Yeah. Psychologists sometimes call it distress tolerance. Oh. It's like you just get distress in the air. Right? <laughs> How do you spell that? So, yeah, you just say like, man, this is, I look super stupid, but you know what? Of course I look super stupid. I just started this. Like yeah. I'm not supposed to be good at it right now. And I'm it's, just accepting that. It's weird being a parent now because it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I don't want to do it because I don't know how. I was like, well, that's mm-hmm. the whole point yeah. of like, <laughs> you know, kind of like, and I, say, I think sometimes you get better as a practitioner when you teach, you know, like you yeah. mentioned like the people that you mentor is like they either become reminders for things that you want to be better at yourself or lessons you learned previously. So, um, so the show is called Innovation Crush, right? Um, I'm curious as to what you've seen in the world. It can be a culinary experience. It, it could be whatever. Um, uh, but that you are currently crushing on something that gives you goosebumps when you've seen it. You're like, Ooh, woohoo. I think it's a really cool innovation. Yeah. Hmm. I think, um, can I think about it and come back or we at the end? We are, well, no, we don't have to be at the end. I'm flexible. <laughs> okay. Because I think like there are a few things going through my head and it's like, I want to pick the best one. Oh, there's no such thing as the best one. Come on. Don't, oh. don't, be, don't get all science on me. Yeah. What was it? What's the one that, what's one of the things? It doesn't have to be the thing, but what's one of yeah, the things? Yeah. I mean, so I, like I follow quantum computing a lot because mm. I'm really curious about that. Uh, where are we going next with that? And of course I don't understand, you know, I don't have the mathematical background to really know that kind of nuts and bolts, but there's a lot of hardware development that's going with it too. And it's going to affect my field, you know, yeah. when that uh, innovation happens. And, you know, some people claim to have them already and uh, others say, well, that's not really a quantum computer because it doesn't have this or that aspect. And so I really pay a lot of attention to those debates because I was like, what? I don't even understand what that <laughs> <laughs> like, why is this guy mad? <laughs> um but you can see like that clearly is something important in their field and where they're just on the cusp, you know, something's yeah. happening there that's exciting and I don't totally understand it, but I feel like I'm going to benefit from it. <laughs> so I want to see where it goes. Yeah. That's uh, we had a, a guy on recently named Spiros Michalakis. It's mm-hmm. a, uh, and he's a. Sounds Greek or something. He is Greek. Okay. Uh, yes. His brother is a restaurateur, but he's a quantum scientist um, he runs the Caltech Quantum Physics Lab, oh, um, but he's also a consultant <laughs> to to Marvel and like he helped them like envision what the quantum realm would look like and Ant Man mm-hmm. and all these things. Um, but similarly, in that com- there's a lot of conversations I have on the show where I'm like, I get most of it, right? And but it for me, and then I'm dumb enough where I go like, oh, so quantum physics is just like in limitless possibility. Right. And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay. So, (laughs) right. Uh, um, But then to your point, it becomes valuable to you just to, to have that affirmation that it's limitless in in a lot of ways. And that's kind of the point of the debate. Like we're not there yet. Are we there yet? No, Mm -hmm. it'll never be done. Um, Will this remain your life's work? I don't see how it could be any other way. It's so highly specialized when you get to this level. Yeah, absolutely. 
You want you want to ride bikes professionally? I would die. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> I'll get better, but CVMA is a tough racing class, man. California has some fast people, so. Just see, I, that's a realm I don't know. I'm actually, <laughs> I was exploring getting my license this year, so that's my. Uh, you have some good instructors out here. That's what happened. You see what happened to my pants the last time. Dude, you're like you. I got some nice scars. It's <laughs> <laughs> starburst on my knees. Last but not least, you get to get, do a do over if you want, but complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is. True novelty, not just technology. Hmm. What's a true novelty? That is something that's a departure from what exists. And so I think what I'm trying to do is really just discriminate what I think a lot of um, things that are called innovation are really just technology. So uh, I have this in the sex space a lot where people say, oh, you know, we innovated and we came up with this new thing. I was like, dude, that's a vibrator in a different shape. Yeah. And there's nothing about that shape that really makes it, you know, useful to anyone else. And you may claim that it is, but you didn't really do any work to show, you know, that that's really, I don't see how that really helped, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? which is fine. You know, you can still make the product and, you know, knock yourself. But I really struggle with that uh, kind of distinction a lot. Cause I think, you know, just because something's invented and you stuck at something new, did you really innovate? You know, did you really create something uh, that is a completely new contribution that is um, using it in a way that was not initially developed for, uh, that's applied in a way that is completely novel. And just because you have technology and you stick it in something new doesn't make it innovative yeah. to me. No, I 100% agree. We were talking about that earlier, just the, you know, the idea of uh, that uh, applied creativity or or just reimagination you know the, mm -hmm. the idea that somebody goes like ah i see something completely new and not an iteration of something um but also rooted in like a a, a deep-seated insight you know or a pain point or something where like there's real value in that like oh we can make smaller size pieces of paper and <laughs> save money like which i think is still part of the innovation mm -hmm. process Right, you mm -hmm. you identify multiple ways to improve things, and then you arrive at something like in some undiscovered territory. So, um, where can people find out about uh, Dr. Nikki P? We got a website, librocenter.com, L-I-B-E-R-O-S Center. Which means what? There was a, a there's a is a translation. I decided I was going to make my freaking oh. Latin useful, and <laughs> so it's Liber and Eros, which is the freedom to desire. Mm. very cool <laughs> all right uh any questions for me okay good so <laughs> thank you for joining us this is great i'm glad you made the trek safely carefully <laughs> safely and carefully <laughs> everyone this has been another installment of innovation crush and we will talk to you next time